Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm so excited to be here this morning with Dr. Paul Upo. And I first got to talk to Dr. Upo because he is the executive secretary of the Guru Nanak Darbar Sikh Temple in Niskayuna, and he was part of a ceremony commemorating the beginning of the Holocaust on Kristallnacht, the Night of Glass, and he just had such fascinating things to say about Sikhism, and I knew so little about it that I thought it would be great to have him in to tell us about himself and about his religion. So welcome, Dr. Upal. Thank you very much. Um, I'd love to start by just talking a little about Thanksgiving. I know that your temple hosted a multi-religious service, and Thanksgiving seems to me like the most wonderful of American holidays, because it isn't connected to any one religion, or to really nationalism or patriotism. So just tell us a little about what went on in that service. Okay, well, we were uh, proud and humble to host the Interfaith Prayer Service at the uh, Sikh Temple in Niskiuna. Um, Our temple is a proud member of the uh, Schenectady Clergy Against Hate, which is a coalition that was founded about a year and a half ago of all the houses of worship in the Schenectady and Niskiuna area. And our mission was to spread the word of God and to spread the word of love uh, in this, um, you know, less than ideal political climate. And um, as part of those activities, we hosted this event. We had over 250 uh, people from all um, uh, houses of worship in the Schenectady and Niskuna area. And we had a series of prayers, a series of speeches, and followed up, of course, by a traditional meal that is actually part of every Sikh service, but especially fitting with the, the the Thanksgiving holiday season. And I spoke at that event about actually the intersection, if you will, between the Sikh religion and Thanksgiving, in the sense that unlike Christianity and Islam and Buddhism, which are very ancient religions, thousands of years going back, the Sikhism is a relatively new religion. And in fact, uh, when the pilgrims landed in uh, Plymouth Rock in uh, 1620, we were into our growth stage of our religion. Um, Our religion was basically founded uh, by a, a Guru Nanak, who was born in 1469. And over the next 200 years or so, the uh, religion spread. So 1620 was within that 200-year uh, um, uh, uh, period. So we um, were very proud to be part of this celebration. It was covered by the uh, local media, and we got a lot of positive publicity because of that. So a year and a half ago, when this Schenectady group founded, what was the impetus to it? And were you one of the original founding members of it? How did you get involved? Uh, yes, we were one of the original founders. The The impetus for it was basically a series of um, incidents at uh, some houses of worship in the Niskayuna and Schenectady area, uh, fortunately not at ours, about people... Um, you know, saying things that were inappropriate um, with the campaign going for a president, you know, the primary season. Um, it gave people um, an excuse to uh, spew out uh, statements and sentiments that we felt were not conducive to uh, brotherhood and sisterhood. And so it was events like that, and we made a, re- a resolution to 
get together and to form an alliance where we could uh, spread the word collectively of our peace and brotherhood in the local area. What a noble mission. Yes, it <laughs> and was. It has is. it been working? It has been a phenomenal success. We've had um, uh, a, a number of activities. Uh, our inspirational leader is our Rabbi Matthew Cutler of the Temple Gates of Heaven in uh, Niskiuna. And we have um, Muslims, we have Hindus, we have Sikhs, we have Christians. Um, and um, it's just been an absolutely phenomenal experience for us. We've had a series of events in the local area, and uh, we couldn't be more proud of what we've done, we feel. Well, you should be proud of it. I wish there were more people doing that kind of work. So can you just tell us a little about yourself? I mean, where you grew up, what your family is like? Sure, sure. Well, I was born in India. Uh, I'm uh, 68 years old. Actually, next week uh, is my 68th birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Uh, Yes, thank you. Um, We um, came to uh, the United States. Uh, My father came in 1959 to Minnesota as a graduate student in the Department of Economics. He's an economist by background. And two years later, in 1961, um, myself, my mother, my sister, and my brother, we came to Minnesota to join him. And we lived in Minnesota for uh, about uh, three years while my father was pursuing his Ph.D. in economics. Uh, When he was almost finished, we had a one-year stint in Hawaii uh, as a part of his um, education. We went to Hawaii for one year. We came back to Minnesota. Uh, He got his degree, and then his first teaching position was in uh, East Lansing, Michigan, where Michigan State University is. Uh, We were there for a couple of years, and I graduated from high school in uh, East Lansing uh, in 1967. And then he got a very nice position at the State University of New York in Albany, And so in 1967, we came to Albany, and we have been here ever since. Uh, My father passed away about uh, two years ago after a distinguished career as an economist. When I came to um, Albany, I was uh, entering college, so I earned my bachelor's degree in mathematics at the State University of New York at Albany, and then I enrolled in the mathematics department at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and I received my master's and Ph.D. degree in mathematics from RPI in 1975. Uh, fortunately, I was um, very lucky to get married in 1974 to a woman, uh, to a Sikh woman who was from uh, India. And um, their family and our family knew each other, and, and our marriage was sort of like, um, uh, I wouldn't say arranged, but our families knew each other from uh, my childhood. And then she came here, and we settled in Albany. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a position in the uh, Department of Health in uh, Albany, and I spent a 40-year uh, career in the New York State Department of Health as a policymaker in the field of uh, health economics and health reform, Obamacare, um, th- things of that nature. I was a, a senior budgeting uh, manager, executive. And uh, after a 40-year career, I retired about five years ago. Um, we had two children. My older son is uh, 40 years old. He is an anesthesiologist. Uh, he was born in New York City while I went there for three years as part of my state uh, career. And he um, has a wife and two children. So I have two grandchildren. And my younger son is 32. He is a forensic ac- accountant with the New York State Department of Health in, um, in Albany. He lives uh, near us. And so, uh, all in all, I think uh, I'm um, uh, a representative of the uh, American dream. We came here, my father came here in search of education, 
and uh, he brought his family. We lived according to you know the American values. We're proud of our country, while holding on to our, our cultural roots back in uh, India. What a wonderful, rich life you have! Thank you. Thank you. So. What part has Sikhism played in this for your family growing up and their family as you raised your children? How, how did religion fit in with all these activities, you know, your education and your raising of children and now grandchildren? What role did religion play in this? I think that's a, that's a very interesting question, and I think the answer probably is typical of um, other immigrant uh, societies in this country which is that uh, when immigrants come to this country, they have, um, uh, I would say, two things in co- three things in common. One is that they have their family, of course, their fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters in some cases, who they feel close to. And in a strange land at the beginning, they seek, uh, uh, they seek comfort in, the, in those immediate family members. The second thing they have is um, other people from their culture, other people from their um, host, you know, from their country or so forth. So they seek them out. And the third thing they have is their faith, because in faith lies commonality among themselves. So just like Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists, uh, Sikhs, from, from the time we landed in Minnesota, we sought out other Sikhs, we sought out um, other uh, people from our country, and so, as a result, we became very interested in, um, in uh, relying on our faith and getting together with each other and trying to spread the faith to the larger community. So that was I, what I would say is, is my beginning, and that kept um, expanding as time went on uh, to the point that um, I'm proud that we have not, I have not lost you know, that faith touch that I think I might have lost otherwise because Americanization, assimilation is very important. But um, if we hadn't paid attention to those religious and cultural roots, perhaps the bond would not be as strong as it is. So is it hard or was it hard when you were in Minnesota to find other Sikhs? Are there many in this country? And how did you get together to form this temple here in the Capital Region? Just tell us a little about not just the physical structure, but the social structure, how many people there are, and how you go about coalescing. Sure. Uh, Sikhism is is not a a big religion in terms of population. Uh, In the whole world, compared to other religions, um, you know, it's quite small. About 30 million uh, Sikhs exist in the world, uh, 25 million of whom are in India, in northern part of India. And of the 5 million that are outside of India, the vast majority are either in uh, Europe, um, namely England, or in uh, North America. We have about 1 million people in North America, and of those 1 million, the vast majority are either in Canada or in the western part of the United States, namely California. So in communities such as Albany and Minnesota and Michigan, uh, the number of Sikhs is uh, quite small. Uh, I would say um, when we landed in Minnesota, we knew about uh, 10 other uh, Sikh families. And as time went on, uh, in Albany, for, for example, right now, there are about 300 families in the, in the Albany greater area. And uh, that means about 500 people at our temple, you know, if everybody comes. Not everybody, of course, comes every weekend. So um, the numbers are small compared to other religions, but the bond is very strong because um, Sikhs all over the world 
of course, share the, the history uh, that, that is very rich that we have. And our religion, um, if I may say so, is a very, very uh, progressive and forward-looking uh, faith. I would just love it if you could do for our listeners what you did for me over the sure. phone and just kind of give us a, an overview of the history of your religion. I know sure. it's very rich and it's hard to fit it in the short time we have, but sure. just kind of walk us through. Okay. Well, first of all, I would uh, uh, urge the viewers, uh, urge the listeners to um, go to Google sometimes if they have time and just Google uh, Sikhism or S-I-K-H um, and and look over the uh, the entries that are on the web because there's a there's a ton of material. The word Sikh um, is derived from Sanskrit and it's derived from the word Shishya, which means student or disciple or someone who wants to learn. That's what Sikh means. Um, to understand Sikhism, uh, it's uh, uh, useful to go back to the the beginning of uh, when our founder was born. Uh, that was in the year 1469. Now, if you know world history, and I know you know most of the listeners uh, that I'm talking to uh, know world history very well, uh, 1469 was a very exciting time in the history of the world. Uh, the Dark Ages had just um, uh, finished. It was a period of the Renaissance. It was known as the Age of Exploration. Uh, European powers, uh, namely England, Spain, and Portugal, and to some extent France, were engaged in expanding. Um, and the typical um, mission of these foreign powers was to seek a route to the east. Uh, there was something mystical about India in particular, um, and it was either the spices or the silk, which were the two commodities that um, these powers sought through trade relationships. And um, uh, so they were all seeking to go to India by the shortest route possible. Portugal, for example, came uh, through Vasco de Gama. He sailed um, um, around the African continent, and then he uh, sailed to the western coast of India. And uh, Spain was trying to reach the east by sailing west. And that gave birth to, you know, of course, Columbus, who was from Italy, but he sailed under the flag of Spain. And he uh, sought to reach the east by sailing west. And we all know from our history that he landed in uh, the Caribbean area, and he thought he had reached India. And that's why the local people that he encountered were named Indians. That's where the name Indians you know, comes from. And he died without knowing that he had found a new, new world indeed. And so it was an age of exploration. Europe was trying to reach out to India. Now, in the meantime, in India, uh, if, if you know the Indian subcontinent, it has a western coast and an eastern coast, and then it has a hinterlands you know, up north um, butting up against the Himal Himalaya mountains. So Sikhism had its birth in um, the upper hinterlands of India, in the northwest part of India. In those years, in those, at that time, it was a combination of the area that is now in India or Pakistan. It was a, a local area was called Punjab. Punjab means five rivers. It was, a, it was an area that is uh, dominated by five main rivers. And um, in that society, there were two main religions— Hinduism and Islam. Uh, Islam had reached the Indian subcontinent in 1100, 
uh, Hinduism, of course, were, was indigenous to the uh, Indian subcontinent thousands of years earlier. So in the presence of these two religions, uh, our founding guru, his name was Nanak, N-A-N-A-K, he was born into a Hindu family, and his father was an accountant, and he aspired that his son also become an accountant, a rather uh, profitable and predictable occupation for anyone in those, in those times. Uh, however, um, Guru Nanak was a very precocious child. Um, Sikhs believed that he was divinely inspired. And at the very young age, he began to question what he saw around him. He, um, he saw the religion of Islam and Hinduism being practiced, and he found some um, hypocrisies, to be, to be fair, in both religions. And he sought to distill the essence of both religions. A um, couple of uh, parables that you know, Sikhs know, which illustrate what he was trying to do. Uh, at a very young age, he, um, he went to uh, Mecca um, as part of his journeys to spread or to learn. And while in Mecca, he uh, happened to be sleeping toward, um, with his feet toward the Kaaba. And in the middle of the night, uh, some of the Muslims there, they woke him up and they said that you are defacing God by sleeping with your feet toward God, so you must move your feet. And Nanak said, well, I always thought that God is everywhere, so uh, what's going on? So they said, no, you, you are defacing God by turning your feet toward him. And Nanak said, okay, fair enough. Why don't you just grab my feet and put me in a direction that you don't think God is, and I'll be happy. So it is said that when they lifted his feet and moved him, um, wherever his feet went, the Kaaba revolved around to, uh, to face the feet. Um, it's just indicative that um, rituals like you can't, cannot do this, you can only do this, uh, that was not seen by Nanak as pure uh, faith. So what he was trying to say is that if you are a Hindu, you should, first of all, believe in Hinduism, and you should believe in social equality. For example, uh, what good is it if the Hindu priest all day um, extols the virtues of the many female Hindu goddesses, but when he goes home at night, he refuses to eat dinner with his wife at his table because of the caste system where males dominated females and so forth. So he said that you have to, to, to use a common phrase, uh, talk the talk and walk the walk. You have to practice what you preach. Uh, he also rejected um, polytheism. He felt that there's only one God. There's not a plethora of gods, which, of course, Hinduism was you know, believing in polytheism. And he also did not believe in uh, idol worship, you know, worshiping stones or worshiping monuments or, or things of that nature. Uh, for Islam, he also had um, uh, things to say about the lack of social equality between males and females, rich and poor. He felt that the priest class in both religions uh, was monopolizing um, uh, the, the business of uh, practicing religion. If a common man wanted to, for example, get his son or daughter married, he had to seek a priest. The priest would charge money to perform the rite. And since the, most of the population was, un, was uneducated, the priests wielded an unfair influence. So he said that... Um, we have to distill both of these things. Uh, and he never said that he uh, is founding a new religion. All he was saying in all his travels and teachings and his written compositions 
was that God is one, and you have to be socially active. You have to believe in absolute equality of male and female and low class and high class. And you have to preach God. You have to uh, practice the word of God in your own way uh, in whatever religion you currently have. But you have to be good at it in terms of all these values. So that philosophy uh, was the core of his beliefs. He passed away in um, 1539. Uh, and after that, or while he was alive, he did have a lot of followers, but not very many. But after he passed away, he, um, he um, had a successor who was not related to him, the second guru. He further um, propagated the faith with these values. The, the, the three values that Nanak proclaimed, I think Cliff's Notes version, <laughs> is, is basically he said three things. He said three things are essential. Um, and in Punjabi, uh, they're called Kirth uh, Karo, Nam Japo, Vand Shako. Kirtagoro means make an honest living, be a useful member of society. You don't have to be a hermit and live in a jungle and, and uh, be, a, be a, um, a monk somewhere in a cave. You should practice a profession, but you should do it honestly. Don't cheat others. Whatever you do, make an honest living. Kirtagoro and be socially active. The second principle is Nam Japo, which is pray on the word of God. And the third is Vandshako, means share your bounty with others. Be merciful. Look to the people beneath you. And be an active member of the society. Seek out injustice. Speak out against injustice. Help people. Help each other. Those were his three common beliefs. And so the gurus um, adopted his philosophy, and they more and more converts I wouldn't say converts. Um, they were Hindus and they were Muslims, but they were attracted to this philosophy, short of leaving their faith and becoming Sikhs. We never, Sikhs do not believe in asking people to join their religion. All they're saying is that whatever you are, be that person, be a good person. And so, with the succession of the second guru and the third guru, um, the religion grew. Um, by the time the third guru, was there. Um, the Islamic uh, rulers were in power, in a political power. Uh, very malevolent dictators had invaded India from the Afghanistan area, and they were very malevolent. However, fortunately for the Sikhs, one of the emperors, while the Sikhs were growing, was very benevolent. Uh, his name was Akbar, and he actually donated land um, where the Golden Temple was, you know, eventually um, uh, constructed. But with his death in, in uh, roughly 1590, uh, his son um, was a very malevolent person, Jahangir. And by that time, there, we had our fifth guru, who was uh, martyred in uh, 1605, um, literally tortured and, and killed. But fortunately, before that time, the fifth guru had... Uh, taken on a project which was very useful for the Sikhs. He had gathered the um, written compositions of the first four gurus who had written extensively on the philosophy of Nanak and how you should live out your lives. And, and he um, uh, created a, an anthology of those, four, of those four gurus' verses along with his own considerable collection of verses into a, um, uh, a book. 
into a into a, a anthology, which was installed in Amritsar at our Golden Temple and became the object of um, seeks, seeking out um, guidance on various aspects of life. If he had not done that, who would have known what would have happened? Because he was martyred literally one year after that project was finished. So then the sixth gurus and the seventh guru and the eighth guru further strengthened the faith. Um, and the ninth guru uh, was also, uh, he also met a very tragic death at the hand of the Muslims. The Muslims, were the, the dictators, were, eventually, <coughs> were essentially engaged in trying to convert everybody to Islam. All the Hindus and Sikhs, they said that Islam or death. And the ninth guru was beheaded literally in, uh, in the streets of Delhi uh, in uh, 1675. Uh, at, his, at that time, his son was nine years old, and he became the tenth guru. Um, the tenth guru fought against the Islamic tyranny and defender of uh, Hinduism and Sikhism at that time. Um, the tenth guru lost his four sons, as well as his wife and his mother, to uh, brutal torture by the by the Islamic uh, dictators. The, the kinds of killings that you that you hear about now at the hands of ISIS, for example, the beheadings and the so forth, uh, those were the exact practices that were being done at that time on the Indian subcontinent. So when the tenth guru left this world in 1708. Uh, he made two decisions. One is, he said that from this point on, there will be no more human succession of gurus. Because there had been issues with the succession of gurus. You know, there were family disputes and, and, and things of that nature. And so um, he said that no more human succession of gurus. You should seek your guidance uh, uh, from the Holy Scripture. Now, the Holy Scripture, as I said earlier, was the one that the fifth guru had compiled. The anthology that's in the, the anthology, Golden Temple. Yes. Um, that had the compositions of the first five gurus. The sixth, seventh, and eighth gurus did not contribute any compositions. So what the tenth guru did is he, he took that anthology and added the compositions of his father, the ninth guru, into the anthology, and that became our Holy Scripture. Now, let me also say that the compositions in the Holy Scripture are not only the gurus, our five gurus plus the ninth guru, but the fifth guru back in the 1600 had also sought out non-Sikh um, holy men, Hindus and Muslims, um, whose philosophy happened to coincide with the principles that Nanak had laid out. And they were Muslims and they were Hindus. And so their compositions are also in the holy book. The point I'm trying to make is it was truly, we feel, an interfaith, uh, interfaith collection. of uh, it's, it's the philosophy. It doesn't matter if you're Hindu or Muslim. It's the philosophy. Do you believe in social equality? Do you believe in love of God? Do you believe in away from idol worship? And if you're a Hindu and you believe in that, your compositions were worthy of that holy scripture. So... The Holy Scripture, as the tenth Guru proclaimed, is identical to what we follow, what we have today. That that Holy Scripture essentially was codified at the time of the tenth Guru leaving this world in 1708. So you can see that for over 300 years, that anthology has been totally unchanged. Um, the various services that we have in the Sikh temples all over the world basically are singing selections from. 
the anthology. Uh, we call it Guru Granth Sahib. That's the name of our scripture. And what is also interesting is that all these compositions are set to music. The fifth guru had set all these to music. They are in various Indian classical um, ragas, and they are meant to be sung, although they, uh, they can be recited as well. It's beautiful poetry, beautiful thoughts, and the Sikhs believe that this is the word of God. This is divinely inspired word of God. And all Sikhs uh, seek uh, comfort uh, in uh, the things that are um, indicated in these compositions. In all the Sikh temples, you see Sikh men and women and children bow before the Holy Scripture, and that is a central point in our temple. We don't have any pictures or uh, exhibits. The Guru Granth Sahib is our everlasting guru. We treat it like a living person. We put it to bed at night. We have a, a bedroom uh, you know, in our temple if you ever come out, and we welcome anyone to come to our temple and, and see for yourself. And then we wake up the guru every morning, um, and we put it on the dais and stays there all day. And um, our services, as I said, are nothing but uh, singing from, uh, those, um, f- from those compositions. And so that is the essence of Sikhism. It's a, it's a very, um, I would say, a very um, uh, eco-friendly, a very progressive. Um, things like um, equality of the genders. Uh, and, and before I forget, a, a very important is that the gurus also believed in, in um, people, uh, whoever comes to the Sikh temple should share a meal with each other. And that was seen as a symbolic of um, eating together without regard to caste or, uh, or gender or economic status. In every Sikh Gurdwara right now, in every, Gurdwara means uh, Guru's house. That's the name that we use to describe our temple. Um, services are followed by meal all the time. And in fact, anytime you go to the Gurdwara, arrangements can be made by people who are there, either as priests or other guests, they will always make you a meal or give you something to eat. It is seen as a, as a, as a must. If, if any Sikh Gurdwara always has a food ready for whoever visits it. And that's a very interesting thing. Now, the art of sitting together and eating, or uh, men and women um, being equal in the eyes of the, 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 the temple, that may seem like a blasé idea right now because there are all kinds of civil rights laws and so forth. But back in the 1600 and the 1500s, uh, those kinds of thoughts were heretic, and they were um, you were met with that death if if you if you dare to um, um, proclaim them. So the Sikhs um, were very progressive in the beginning. We do not believe in converting people to our faith. We feel that you should learn about Sikhism and you should learn enough from that that you can become true in your own faith. And if you respect Sikhism, then you can respect our history, you can respect our values, and you can come and respect our services, but we are not in the missionary business. We do not uh, ask people to join, although a number of Americans, um, uh, men and women, have become Sikhs over the years. Uh, they have uh, been attracted to the, to the philosophy of Nanak and to the history of the Sikhs, but that is not through coercion or um, advocacy, that's through uh, self-learning and self-direction. 
What a wonderful history. So, um, so I have so many questions. I don't even know where to begin. But so when you meet for a service, is there a leader the way, say, the Catholics would have a priest or the Protestants would have a minister? Or how, how, is, how does the, the singing service unfold? Okay. That, that is also a very interesting and perceptive question because one of the things that Nanak um, originally rebelled against was the monopoly of the priests. The, the, the fact that in those days, only the priests, the Brahmin class, could um, engage in religious practices, could deliver sermons at temples, and so forth. And he actually ridiculed them, that, uh, that you are a um, sinner at heart when you go home, and yet you come to the temple and, and you preach. And so, according to Sikh thought, anyone... A group of people can sit together and anyone can recite um, um, compositions, anyone can uh, speak out, and we call it the Sangath, which is the collection of worshipers. We feel that anyone in the Sangath is just as good as anyone else. Now, practically speaking, um, the singing of compositions obviously requires um, singing voice, singing ability. So over the years, what has happened is that uh, Sikh priests have um, come to the surface. These are essentially trained uh, musicians who play the various instruments, and they are good singers. They also are able to recite the compositions in a, in a more professional way than common you know, worshipers can. Um, so as a result, practically speaking, there is a class of Sikh priests, but we do not hold them uh, as above anyone else in the in the Sangat. We do not put them on a pedestal by any means. Uh, for example, in the temple that we have in Niskayuna, if you come, uh, we do have three priests who perform the services every uh, every weekend, but anyone in the Sangat can join them. In fact, I myself have joined them in certain services. Women or men can join. Uh, it's a, it's a, We essentially take pride in not putting our priests in any any uh, high position in terms of uh, what he he is or she is compared to what the normal sangat is, and we do not have gender bias either. Uh, women can be priests as well as men. Although practically speaking, uh, men have tended to dominate the the the, the singing uh, the singing priests. Although women can sing as well. I would also love to hear more about how music became such an integral part of this. Where did the gurus when they um, you know, had their lessons or learnings? Did they were they musicians and they thought musically? Is it written in rhythms, like poetry, or how did the music and what particular instruments go along with this? Okay, um, the the Guru Nanak, the founding guru, did compose, and he had uh, two followers, uh, a Hindu and a Muslim, uh, and the three of them were going went around and they they sang you know, their compositions. And the uh, instruments they used was uh, very were crude instruments. They were sort of like a, um, um, it's called a, a rabab, which is a sort of a violin. It's like a violin instrument, a string instrument. And uh, there was a percussion instrument, um, sort of like a, like a drum, like a little drum. So that was it. It, it, was, uh, it was a three of them. And um, the fifth guru, uh, who compiled the anthology uh, initially, he was a, a well-trained um, intellectual, 
um, guru who was uh, familiar with the musical measures. So he actually took the compositions of the first five gurus, four plus himself, and he uh, put them in an organized way in the anthology. For example, in the anthology, each shabad, meaning each composition, is set to a particular musical measure. And also each shabad has a, a, a specific structure, like the number of lines and the number of stanzas. It's, it's actually a very beautiful and intricate set of compositions, set to music, set to uh, poetry, rhythm. And um, to recite it is beautiful, but to hear it being sung is actually very blissful. And if you ever have a chance to listen to it, and if you know, if we can also, you know, have, we do have the translations. Um, it is absolutely very, very soothing, very, very valuable, and uh, there is nothing like it as far as we know. Well, I can just imagine, because even in pop culture, a song stays in your head in a much more tenacious way right. than, than just words. Right. So what language is this in? Yeah, it's, it's in a language called Gurmukhi, which means the word of the guru. But it also is known as Punjabi. Punjabi is the language of the Punjab. Uh, it is a it is a drive from Sanskrit originally through Hindi, which is the in which is the main language in India. Punjabi is a is a separate language from those two, but similar in many ways. So. In a Christian church, they have these hymnals on the back of every pew, and yes. people pick them up, and they can read the notes and sing. Yeah. Is this something that is written for people, or is it like in in their heads? Okay, uh, it is written. The Holy Scripture is a is a giant is a giant uh, volume. Uh, it has uh, fourteen hundred and thirty pages, and the pages are very big. <laughs> it's like a huge huge thing. Um, when the singing is done in the temple, we have a screen. Now, obviously, you know, we're in the 21st century, so yeah. we, have to, we have to use all the media that is available. On the screen, we project what is being sung in Punjabi, and we also project what is being sung in English translation. The Sikhs, the, the devout Sikhs know most of these compositions by heart. They are very familiar with them. Uh, just like Christians would be very familiar with certain carols, certain hymns. Um, although, also in uh, today's world, you have your smartphones and you have your iPads and iPods, and you have uh, sections from the Holy Scripture actually on the on your smartphone. There's an app. There's an app that you can download, <laughs> and so people can follow. But the devout Sikhs, they pretty much know what is being sung. But for Westerner visitors, uh, we have the translations. So the media is uh, very, very good. The, if you, you know, Google anything in Sikhism, and you can listen, uh, you can listen video clips of these shabads, you know, and so. Um, Yes. Okay. Well, this, I hope, doesn't seem like an intrusive question, but here I am looking at Dr. Upal, and he has a full beard yes. and a turban, yes. and that's the thing I think most of us who are not very well informed about Sikhs think of when okay. we think of that, and I just wonder if you could talk a little about, about that. Yeah, this has a history as well. Um, as I said, the Sikhs uh, are a tiny religion. Uh, they were like a small island in uh, in India. Uh, the India is domin- was dominated and continues to be 
dominated by Hindus and Muslims uh, to some extent. Hinduism is about 85% of the population in India right now. Uh, Muslims are about 10% of the population. So that's 95% right there. <laughs> the other 5% are Buddhists and Sikhs. And so throughout history, we were always a um, sort of a minority, minority group. And um, we were also subject to uh, persecution uh, by the Islamic dictators. Uh, although the Islamic population in general was very sympathetic to the Sikhs, it was the malevolent dictators in Islam who were hell-bent on converting not only Sikhs but also Hindus to Islam. Um, so slowly over the course of the two, three hundred year period, um, we sought to establish a, a, a physical identity uh, that was unique to Sikhs. Because at the time of Nanak and at the time of the second guru, the third guru, and so forth, um, we looked just like anyone else. We, we would uh, have uncut hair. You know, we would have cut hair. We would look just like Hindus or even Muslims to that, uh, to that, for that matter. So the slowly, beginning with the sixth guru, we began to give thought to asserting our physical identity so that we could seek comfort in each other by looking at people that look like us, a cultural identity, physical identity. And this culminated in the, in, in the time of the 10th guru, who actually, um, in uh, the year 1699, he uh, created um, um, the Khalsa, which is meaning the, um, the, regiment, the regimentation of Sikhism into a group of people. Khalsa means the pure, into a series of human beings who um, were Sikhs, and they, they would have a common physical identity, they would have a common spiritual identity, and who would devote their life to um, carrying out the word of Sikhism in a united way. And so he actually had a gathering at which he, um, he made this proclamation, and he um, um, proclaimed um, uh, uh, the, the manifestations of the physical identity. And we call them the five Ks. You know, five Ks because all the... Um, the, the, the principles start with the letter K in our alphabet. So our five Ks, the first K is called case. Case means hair. That means that we do not cut our hair. And in order to, to keep those, that hair in tidy, we wear a turban. So that was, the, that was the first K, case slash turban. The second was that we, um, is called a kara, K-A-R-A. It is a bracelet that is worn by all men and women. Uh, I happen to have it. Uh, you can see here, this, this is a bracelet that all Sikhs... It's all, a beautiful all, golden all, bracelet all, he's displaying. All yeah. Sikhs have. Um, that, this signifies purity and unity with God. The third, uh, uh, third proclamation was um, uh, Kirpan. Kirpan means a sword. And the Sikhs were to carry a... Um, uh, you know, a, a symbolic sword. Now, what the sword represents is a commitment to fighting injustice anywhere we see it, either our own experience with injustice or any injustice that we see around us. And we are committed to fighting that injustice. And that basically is, is something something like this. Um, this, this is a small um, um, symbolic kirpan. So we're supposed to have this with Can us I at all times. That yes, that's just yes, beautiful. Yes. Um, some Sikhs have a larger version. 
Um, and uh, but this is known as a kirpan. So you carry this with you always, and yeah. it's got some. Is that Sanskrit lettering on it? Um, it is not. San- it's a Punjabi lettering. Okay. It's called Ekonkar Vaheguru, uh-huh. which means one God, and His name is a truth, which is a part of our you know faith value. And so the the fourth K is uh, called Kanga. Kanga is a is a small comb that we use that we are supposed to keep with us to keep our hair tidy. Um, and we have to look, you know, a tidy. And that's uh, that's that's this one, you know, like this. Um, and again, these are not just like dime store objects. This looks like yeah. a beautiful hand carved yeah. rosewood. Is it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, with very fine teeth. Yeah. And, and so these can be some Sikhs uh, put it right at the top of their head, underneath the turban, in, in in the middle of the hair. Some people carry it separately. And the last K that we have is called kachera which is, um, believe it or not, it's an underwear. And we believe that um, uh, hygiene, personal hygiene is very important. So all Sikhs, men and women, uh, are to wear underwear. Um, And again, that signifies our commitment to purity. Now, these five Ks, the most, uh, obviously the most identifiable one is the turban and and the hair. Um, And that, what that did to the Sikhs is, Actually, it's very interesting, and I mentioned this to you when we spoke earlier. Um, what, this, what the guru was trying to do was to instill confidence as well as unity. And he, and he said that, um, you know, we are being persecuted right now because of our faith. So, la, so by having a common physical identity, it actually exposes us to a higher risk than if we do not have a common physical identity, because it would be very easy for people to spot Sikhs now with a with turban and beard. It would make persecution even easier. But the guru said that that should be a strength and not a weakness. A, a common physical identity should embolden us more to stand together to fight injustice. And so it's very interesting. And, and the second thing that it did was it gave Sikhs an opportunity to to seek each other out very easily in any crowd. Even, even today, um, when I travel on an airline or whether I go to a sporting event or, or any place, um, it's very enjoyable to, to meet people you know, with, with, a, with a common physical identity. You seek it out, you become, it's a brotherhood. And it's a very um, uh, unique concept and a concept that we take very seriously now, not all Sikhs follow these five Ks. Um, some, uh, most Sikhs wear a turban, and most Sikhs have a beard, but that is not to say that all do. Um, but most of them do. And the ones who don't, they become around eventually, you know, as, as, as time goes on. Uh, you can understand some of the hesitation that people may feel because uh, they may be discriminated against in, in places of employment. They may have a more difficult time finding employment. Um, so there's all kinds of uh, practical and personal reasons why people may not uh, adopt these um, uh, uh, these principles, but they all respect these principles. The women also have the same five Ks. Uh, of course, you know they don't have beards, but they do have long hair, and they wear um, shawls over their head. And and um, um, they also have the same the same uh, principles. So they have the sword too. They have the symbolic yeah. sword. Yeah, as well? yeah. These yeah. Uh, these swords are uh, um, they're symbolic in the sense that we don't we don't 
you know, me, mean to say that you have to carry a full-fledged, you know, No, uh, sword but you, so you were talking yeah. about how unusual it was in the founding right. to have women be equal. And certainly, right. women as warriors right. is, a, you know, a symbolic sword. Right. I mean, it's I mean, a very I, unusual idea. I mean, I've seen, I've seen these kangas, these combs, yeah. with a little, little comb, like, like embedded, like a very tiny one. Uh-huh. You know, and I've seen those available too. Yeah. This is a little bigger than that. Yeah. So, and some Sikhs actually wear it uh, with a, and they wear it with a band around their, uh, around their, you know, their body. Um, and so the guru said that, you know, I want to create the Khalsa, which is the pure. These are the pure. You can think of it as the baptism. You can think of it as uh, Orthodox. But these are these are Sikhs who who are baptized into this brotherhood. Well, I am so sorry. Our time is way past up. I have just learned so much more this morning talking to you. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? Well, let me say something about our temple. Um, it's located in Niskiuna. Um, its uh, address is nineteen forty four Union Street. In Niskiuna, one two three zero nine. It's at the intersection of Route Seven and Saint David's Lane in Niskiuna, right where Union Street intersects with Route Seven. Uh, you're welcome to come. Uh, we have services every Sunday, um, as well as Saturday night. But Sunday is the main day, roughly from um, you know uh, at twelve o'clock to two o'clock, and uh, followed by a community meal. As I mentioned earlier, that's a, a central tenet of our faith. And uh, I would be happy to uh, speak to any group or any um, coalition or any committee that uh, would have me. And uh, we are very um, interested in spreading the word and very interested in making sure people know about us. Well, thank you. You have certainly educated me this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.